Welcome to the Selby is Godcast here on the Athletic Cleveland. TJ Zuby, Zach Meisel this week. And Zach, you know, usually before we get, or actually after we get into everything that we're, we talk about and after an hour has passed and and people have long since given up on the podcast, I, I drop all the of our little you know, little our, our little asks, our little nuggets, our you know, hey, subscribe to us, rate us, do all of that different stuff. Find us on Apple Podcasts. I thought it would probably make more sense if we did that in the beginning portion of a few podcasts too. You know, because last week you were offering money for ratings on Apple <laughs> Podcasts, and I don't know how much money you ended up losing this week, but I just want to make sure that everyone is able to take part in anything you may be offering, any sort of bribe to subscribe to the Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts and to actually jump on there and say kind words or mean words, any sort of words really, to just show up and make it so we have a rating. I just want to make sure that happens for everybody out there. I'll tell you this. I'm out of cash. Um, (laughs) The the listeners have cleaned me out, but I would be more than happy to get a beer with some listeners or readers if they support The Athletic. Um, I know we are giving away stuff like crazy. You can get free t-shirts. You can get uh, Amazon gift cards if you refer a friend. You can get discounts like crazy. I am willing to have a beer with you if you... Um, what's the word? Just crazily support the athletic. <laughs> Just one though. Anything more than that, that's then your wife starts to wonder where you're at, who you're out with. Well, so just one, one is smart. like one Christmas ale knocks me on my feet these days. So that's that might be all I can handle. <laughs> You've fallen a long way since your OSU days. I, yeah, I'm I'm willing to bet that. All right. Well, this week, um, a few things to discuss. One being. A little bit more newsy, so let's let's knock that out first. The news this afternoon that the Indians have come to terms with Dan Otero on a two-year contract extension, and it includes a club option that would cover his first free agent year. So essentially, you bought out two years of arbitration, giving him that money, that guarantee now, and in return, he's given you the option to pick up that that extra year that you would have lost if you just went through the arbitration process. Pretty. I think this is pretty cut and dry when you look at this situation, the type of money that we're talking about, and reportedly $1.5 million club option in 2020. Uh, pretty good deal, I would think, for, for – I think I don't think I can find anybody that would disagree with, with signing Otero to this sort of deal and, and looking what sort of production that he could provide. I would think it, most anybody would look at it as a bargain. Does Dan Otero know that – the major league minimum this season is five hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> like, like it's okay to to ask for what you're worth. I, look, we we weren't in the negotiations. We we don't know exactly how they played out. I do know Dan Otero has three very young daughters, so um, I'm that's not a an inexpensive thing to have on your plate. But my goodness, what a bargain for the Indians! Even if Dan Otero's arm falls off, it's like you only have you're basically committing a million dollars a year here to this guy who has been really, really serviceable in all but one year of his major league career. So it's, it's a no brainer when when you start to think forward and and you know that Cody Allen and Andrew Miller might walk after next season. It's comforting to know that you have a guy who's been really durable and, and reliable and he's on the hook for 
barely any money and maybe uh, in 2020 as well. So it's, I, I scratched my head when I saw the numbers. Um, but I do know he's a really good guy and it's, these were probably easy negotiations. I doubt that, um, he was demanding more and the Indians said, no, I mean, this is, this was probably pretty simple to get done. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the really only bad year he's had in his career, which got a little bit of a late start, but it was in 2015 and that was the year before he got traded to the Indians and he had a lot of bad luck that year. And the Indians front office looked at that and said, yeah, I think there's some things on the periphery that we can believe in. We think this guy can still be a serviceable arm. That's why they traded for him. And so far in the first two years, they've been correct. Now, I think he was probably a little bit lucky in 2016 and maybe just a little bit unlucky in 2017. But if you just take the average of the two seasons, pretty phenomenal for a middle reliever that think of it this way. If, if we get to that situation where Brian Shaw Joe Smith sign elsewhere and they can't find that that type of arm to replace the production of either one of those arms and they have to start bumping the the current group up to take on some of those some of those higher leverage situations guys like Dan Otero and and Nick Goody may be the first two that come to mind if if that's the case and Otero slides in and gives you similar production to what he's given you for the first two years in his Indians career. And he's now pitching more meaningful innings to be doing that for just over a million dollars is incredible. And and the Indians do this a lot. They often will look for certain lottery tickets and uh, sometimes they hit on them. Sometimes they don't, but in return for giving up that guarantee now, they, they earn something back in the future. And that was a similar sort of deal for Otero that, I mean, I, I, I tried to look in being in our shoes. We're supposed to look for the other side of the coin. You know, there's the, always the obvious, the, the one that everyone believes in, you know, what aren't we seeing? I there's nothing that I could look at in this deal or in this, having this union continue that I would say, well, you gotta be, you gotta be cautious about that. As you said, even if he's horrible from here on out, to take a risk on that, which probably isn't going to happen based on everything we've seen so far in his career, to give to to take that sort of risk, which is not a risk at all when you're talking about just over a million bucks, it's pretty smart decision. I mean, you you physically you cannot get a reliever or anyone on the free agent market for cheaper than that, right? And even if even if you wanted to just promote minor leaguers to the to the big leagues, they're going to be making about half of what Otero's making just by being on the roster. I mean, it, it's it's a no-lose situation for the Indians, and I'm sure for Otero, look, he probably could have gotten more in our arbitration, but maybe knowing the volatile uh, way that relievers have it, where just some years you lose it and you don't know why, um, I, I guess it's you might as well strike now. So, but... It, I was told that this was going to be the Michael Martinez cast. I thought this was going to be 60 minutes of Michael Martinez talk. So why are we not doing that? Well, we have a question that came later in the podcast, which we'll get to about Michael Martinez. So I, you know, I, today I brought the subscription asks and, and and rating us and and following us and all those sorts of things out early so that I could get to the best stuff later. So just bear with me. Uh, But I, you know, I was thinking about, not only the situations with Otero where um, you're looking at middle relievers kind of carrying a bigger role now, a bigger importance, because teams are 
are smart enough to to forecast some of their starters not being capable or as good, uh, shouldn't pitch the third time through the lineup, and, and knowing that, so maybe they have shorter leashes, so you go to your bullpen sooner, and having arms like Otero uh, is pretty necessary for any team that's trying to compete and win a championship. And I, and I was comparing that to teams of, of yesteryear and, and, and the way that the managers used to to, to make moves with their ball clubs 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I, I think some of this has come full circle where you're seeing some relievers go out there for multiple innings, and, and that's kind of a throwback to, to what used to happen with bullpens and wasn't really a closer coming in for one inning. He'd come in for three, and you had those sort of throwback relievers that are becoming more in vogue now. But, I mean, think about the way managers used to – to put together their teams. And I, and I was watching, don't ask me why I had, how I got onto this, but it is the off season. And thanks to Otani, not much of anything is happening. So I stumbled on a YouTube clip of the 1996 AL division series, Indians and Orioles. And I'm just looking at the way the lineup is put together in this particular mm. game. It's game four, the one where the Indians eventually lose on Robbie Alomar's home run in extra innings. And, and the dream of a return to the World Series is over, and all of that. All of that sticks out. The thing that I had forgotten is how sort of ridiculous this team was stacked up with. It was so talented, yet I'm looking at the lineup, Zach, and I'm seeing Kenny Lofton leading off. No problem there. And then you have Omar Vizquel in the two-hole. Kevin Seitzer in the three-spot, DHing in this game in front of Albert Bell. Manny Ramirez is hitting sixth. Jeff Kent is hitting seventh. And, and I'm thinking, like, what in today's environment where we're willing to put Carlos Santana in the, the leadoff spot because he gets on base and we don't care about his ability to steal bases, how much better could the teams of 95 and 96 and 97, how much better could they have been stacked if we had been thinking more uh, with the, the analyst cap, the metric base that we've built up now? <laughs> Uh, there, there's nothing better, and I think I can speak for both of us here, having grown up as kids in Cleveland watching the 90s Indians, there's nothing better than re-watching some of those games in their entirety, um, and a lot of them are on YouTube now. I've done the same. I, I can't tell you how many times I have watched that 99 Division Series Game 5. I know Pedro Martinez comes in, shuts the door, and it was uh, just a, a terribly blown opportunity by the Indians. But that game, it was like home run after home run, back and forth. Tommy versus Troy O'Leary. It was incredible. I love watching that. Anyway, so I, I looked this up. In 1996, the Indians played 161 games. And you just rattled off all the sluggers they had. Manny Ramirez hit fourth once. Okay. Most of the time, he hit fifth 61 times. He hit sixth 52 times. He hit seventh 29 times. So he was toward the bottom of the order, and he only hit fourth once. <laughs> the day he hit fourth was the day after they clinched. He was the DH. And, <laughs> and the lineup went as follows. Casey Candeli first at second base. Geronimo Pena. Remember him? No. No, I don't. Yeah. Well, he batted second and started at third base. Brian Giles played right field. He hit third. Manny hit fourth and DH'd. Do you remember Nigel Wilson? 
Uh, again, not these are really. real people. I don't. He hit know. fifth. I don't in think left so. Field. so. This thing, these guys had to be on the forty-man roster to play. Yeah, I have no Jeff recollection Kent, of these guys. Jeff Kent hit sixth at first base. Do you remember someone named Ryan Thompson? Yeah, of course. Okay, well, Who he hit forget? seventh in center field. Tony Pena hit eighth and caught. Damian Jackson hit ninth, played shortstop. My point is, it's not just when they're trying to win where the lineup was terrible. The day after you clinched, you have Casey Candeli and Geronimo Pena in the one and two spots. Like, why not hit Brian Giles first, Manny second, Jeff Kent third, something like that? Um, yeah, it was, we just, I think everyone accepted a different train of thought back then, which was table setters at the top and your best hitter, maybe your best all-around hitter third, your best slugger fourth, and then go from there. And with the Indians, that meant Tomi and Ramirez were hitting sixth and seventh, and you put Vizquel second because he was a really good bunter and could handle the bats and wouldn't, you know, he could move runners and... I don't know. <laughs> it seems really stupid now. and, and But I, wasn't every team doing that? I mean, it's not like the Yankees were hitting um, Tino Martinez second. No, I mean, you're right. But it's, it's funny to think of now. Because Omar Vizquel was... When we're talking about 95, 96, 97, you had these premier... He was the worst sluggers. hitter in the lineup. He's the worst hitter in the lineup getting the second most played appearances of anybody on the team. It, it's, it's ridiculous actually now to think about that, that he, that Omar Vizquel was getting more at bats, uh, on a daily basis than Albert Bell, Jim Tomey, Manny Ramirez, Paul Sorrento, uh, Julio Franco, uh, even the bottom of the lineup, Sandy Alomar. I mean, it, it's, it's stupid to think about that now. And I asked you guys in the text thread as we were kind of debating this yesterday, you know, how many at-bats, how many plate appearances did Albert Bell lose by hitting fourth pretty much his entire career? If, if he would have hit third or second in those lineups and gotten mm-hmm. at-bats, plate appearances in the first inning, would he have squeaked out another, you know, 50, 60, 70 plate appearances? How many more home runs would he hit in his career? Um, it's, it's funny to think about that now because you're right. At, at the time, it was a different thought process. Even watching that game, you have Jim Tomey on the bench because David Wells is starting and heaven forbid Tomey plays against a lefty. So you've got <laughs> Jeff Kent in the lineup who this is pre Jeff Kent blossoming into whatever he became. And I mean, you also have Jose Mesa coming out of the bullpen, blowing into the ninth inning on a single by Robbie Alomar, no less pitching into the 12th. So that's his fourth inning of relief. It looks like, and unfortunately on the ESPN broadcast back then, there's no radar gun readily available. But it looks like Mesa's throwing about 87. I mean, he just is throwing junk up there. Um, You've completely probably taken him out. Even if you win that game, is he available for game five? Probably not because you've just destroyed uh, him pitching. But he had the will to win. (laughs) Not according to Omar Vizquel in 97 in his book. But, I mean, to think about that now, I mean, yes, there are are instances where managers have no choice but to go with their best relievers. But Jose Mesa clearly laboring in his fourth inning. And I'm just thinking about this now. How much different 
uh, managers would have been not only just second guess, but first guess too. Now, granted, it's a different environment. We don't have Twitter like we do now, and you can't you can't jump down the throat of every little thing that happens, and it doesn't become such a big deal because there wasn't that uh, that element of social media back then. But to think about those lineups and how much better they could have been stacked is is pretty pretty incredible. I mean, just take that '95 team. You have Vizquel hitting second, Bayerga hitting third, Bell hitting fourth, and then some hodgepodge of Tommy Ramirez, Sorrento, and the the bottom of the lineup. I mean, if if you're filling out the lineup card for the '95 Indians, just the tip a typical day in '95, how would you put together that lineup? Isn't this funny? <laughs> Because I don't think you can do this in other sports. But I even remember I wrote an article a few years ago saying if we if we had the values back in the day that we have now where war matters and we look at more than just batting average and RBIs, you know, different players would have won different awards. You would have had different MVP winners, different Cy Young winners. And it could have changed the course of history. We might have looked at some players differently. Some guys might have made more money, some would have made the Hall of Fame. And it's just funny how the reason that those things didn't happen is just because we had this antiquated view. Um, of course, at the time, it's not antiquated. but And I mean, we'll, look, we'll probably be able to do that someday with the current landscape too, which is funny. Sure, sure. But I, I just look at this Indians lineup, and I'm looking at the batting orders day by day from 95. Anytime Kenny Lofton got a day off or was hurt, Wayne Kirby batted first. <laughs> it was like, it's like... We can't move. We have to have our speedy center fielder hit first to set the table. We, God forbid, we move Vizquel to first or Bayerga to the top spot in the lineup. Albert Bell has to hit fourth. Bayerga has to hit third. Murray has to hit fifth. Like, none of that can change. It's unbelievable. I mean, Albert Bell, that season, it was the great, like, you look at his numbers, there are some Barry Bonds-like seasons in there, and it's just, it's a shame that he got hurt and and couldn't keep going because, I mean, that's, he had a Hall of Fame career going for a decade and just, wasn't able to to stay on the field, but Albert Bell that year, we all know the only 50, 50 season in major league history, 52 doubles, 50 home runs, 126 RBI, 317, 401, 690 slash line. <laughs> led the league in like everything second in the MVP only because he was a jerk and he hit fourth every single game. <laughs> he started 143 of the 144 games every single time he hit fourth. Imagine if he hit third, like, God forbid he gets an extra, what, 40 plate appearances, 50 plate appearances maybe. It, it's it's unbelievable. So, I, you know, Kenny Lofton should have hit first, I think. And after that, it's interesting because, like, Bayerga was such a good hitter that year that I still probably would want him second, I think. And then I would probably go Bell and then Ramirez. But, like, you could make an argument that Ramirez should hit second or Bell should hit second. Or, Jesus Christ, Tommy had a 438 on base. But here's what's funny. You've just listed, like, five guys that can hit second. None of them are Omar Vizquel. Well, Omar (laughs) did have a 684 OPS, which was lower than Bell's 690 slugging percentage. (laughs) Omar was 20% below the league average in run creation that year. 80 WRC plus. 80. And meanwhile, you've got thumpers, like you just laid out, all hitting 6th, 7th, 8th, so you could have a really deep lineup. But at the top of the lineup, you're also wasting probably outs. Uh, I, 
I think I would, I mean, Lofton first. And I, I know somebody that we, we were talking to in this conversation tried to make a point that if you moved him down to the lineup, that he, his speed would play better because he's not giving away outs, running on the bases in front of Is Bell that the same person who and... thinks that injuries are a good thing? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is the same person. Makes me wonder. Um, but <laughs> also Lofton... Off the top of my, oh, hold on. I, I can actually look this. I can use stats to use. To I make mean, he my stole point. fifty-four bases. He had a three sixty-two on base percentage, thirteen triples. He's the ideal leadoff hitter, especially in that era. But he, um, I mean, he he kind of married the two. Like it, it's ideal now and then as well. I mean, he, he, okay, so he got caught fifteen times. He made successfully stole fifty four bases. So okay, so he gave away fifteen outs on the bases in front of some tremendous hitters. So I still would leave that. In the, <laughs> I have no problem leaving leaving that in the leadoff spot. Behind that, I would put Bayerga second, um, and then I would go Bell third, and then I really it doesn't really matter after that. That's the funny thing that you can do this so many different ways. But the only way that they did it was probably the most wrong way you could have done it. Probably hmm. Tommy third or Tommy fourth, Ramirez fifth, Murray sixth, Sorrento seven, Vizquel eight, Alomar Pena ninth. But I mean, that I, how many more runs could they have scored by putting the lineup that way as opposed to the way that they did it? It's just amazing that that lineup on days when Kenny Lofton was not in the lineup. <laughs> Started with Wayne Kirby, who had a 558 OPS, and Omar Vizquel, who had a 684 OPS. Like, <laughs> how how does that happen? Go by Erga, Ramirez, Bell, Murray, Tomey, and th- those five will produce runs like crazy. And then Sorrento, who hit 25 home runs that season. I mean, it's oh, uh, that's. Uh, I wonder if Mike Har- what Mike Hargrove thinks now about that line of construction then, and if he would change anything. I mean, I know a lot of. I don't know if it's something he would think about. Um, and he's also, he managed for a long time. It's not like right. this was it for him. So he certainly adapted his front offices, grew and, and changed kind of their mindsets too. So I don't know. That might be an interesting story on The Athletic uh, some point in 2018. Omar Vizquel, 10 sacrifice bunts that year. Kenny Lofton, oh. four sacrifice bunts. Sandy Amar, three sacrifice bunts. Herbert Perry, three sacrifice bunts. Had to get him in the lineup against the lefties. He just had to. Well, uh, he hit an 839 OPS. I'd rather have him hitting second. <laughs> Manny, you ready? Are you sitting down? Manny Ramirez, two sacrifice bunts. Alvaro uh, Espinosa, two sacrifice bunts. Ruben Amaro, two. Wayne Kirby, one. Jesse Levis, one. Tony Pena, one. And Eddie Tucker, any ooh. recollection of that? Also, one sacrifice bunt. So there were the outs given away. 31 outs given away in the midst of one of the best offenses this town has ever seen. So just think about that the next time. It's been a slow day and there's nothing really going on the hot stove. Just l- allow yourself to go down the rabbit hole of the different ways the Indians could have built their team, knowing, knowing then what we know now. Why is it that every player who had just a cup of coffee that season for the Indians had just an ungodly OPS? <laughs> like... Brian Giles was five for nine in six games with the Indians that season, 1444 OPS. Jeremy Burnitz was four for seven in nine games, 1286 OPS. I forgot they had Billy Ripken for a minute 
He was seven for 17 with a couple of home runs, 1176 OPS. Jesus. I could stare at their page for hours. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I, I'm willing to bet that you probably will later today. All thanks to the Celtics Godcast. And I'm hoping other people do that as well. And maybe send us different things that they may see, either at TJ Zuppi or at Zach Meisel, that drive them crazy thinking about the antiquated, antiquated way that we used to think about baseball compared to some of the forward thinking that is uh, in existence today. You know, and I think, I think Tito deserves some credit because uh, you know he obviously played the game back even before this and was part of the way that baseball used to be played and now he he manages in in the middle of uh, metrics and and having a stat some, for basically everything is trying to build some sort of value for any type of skill that someone possesses um, and I think to his credit, as best as he can, he's found a way to marry the two. I mean, there are certain things that he does that I don't agree with. And every time Francisco Lindor lays down a sacrifice bunt, an angel gets its rings, wings ripped off. But still, for, for, for all the different things that I think a manager has to consider and the players and being able to communicate what they're trying to do is, is involved in that. I think he does a pretty decent job of uh, being able to to find a way to marry the two. And I know we talked about Tito last week, just the way that not only he handles the players, but also handles us. I mean, we, we talk to Tito more, unfortunately, than we talk to our wives uh, during the regular season. And as a result, just like in a marriage, you start to pick up on little tendencies, different things that a person does, is we're sitting in the room every day, twice a day, talking to Tito we pick up on his little Titoisms and you had the idea last week that you wanted to bring out some of your favorites. We didn't have enough time to get to it, but I figured, yeah, this week we've got a little bit of time to dive into that. So enough with your teasing. Let me know some of your favorite Titoisms. I'll tell you what, your segue game is off the charts today. Um, I, I miss it. And we'll thankfully get to a refresher course next week in Orlando um, at the winter meetings. But you know, you, you hear him say the same things every day, and that's not like give the same answers every day, but the same little phrases and colloquialisms every day that you become like, like I think by the end of every season, we can basically recite his answers before he does. Like we know what he's going <laughs> to say and we know how he's going to say it. And it's just weird to have been removed from that for now, what, two months almost? Um kind of it loses its edge so it'll be nice to to hear that again next week you know the the easy one is he always when he's caught off guard by a question he he likes to prepare he likes he he comes into the interview room with some general ideas of what we might ask him and so whenever you throw a curveball at him and and give him a question he's not expecting or a long-winded drawn out question which he hears at least once a day from certain people um he will reply with, oh boy, and then let out a sigh. And that's <laughs> often like, taking his cap off and then using the side of the brim of the cap to itch the top of his head. Yeah. And sometimes if it's, if it's something really out of left field, he'll also add, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's good to ask questions he's not expecting because you're going to get a, a legitimate um, an answer that's not just kind of staged, but there's also a difference, Zach, between a question that is thoughtful enough, that is thought provoking yeah. enough that 
it catches him in off off guard and a question that catches somebody off guard because it just has no place in <laughs> in the interview room. I think there are giant differences there. Yeah, and you also want to make sure it's something he actually has interest in answering too because he also likes to sometimes he'll skirt a question by saying I've never given it thought and it's like you want to reply and say okay, well now's your chance. Give it thought and give me an answer. <laughs> Um, but he doesn't like to do that. So you have to make sure it's, it is thoughtful and it's something that warrants his time and energy into, into concocting an answer because he can easily just move aside and, and move on to the next question. And I give him credit though, because oftentimes where he might give an answer that it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying, where it's, he kind of sidesteps it or doesn't, put enough thought into it. And with Tito, if you give him a few minutes to let that breathe at the end of his response, he often will pick up and almost readdress it or give you a better response in the, the secondary response. And that's kind of part of knowing, knowing your audience, in this case, knowing the manager. If you jump in immediately with a question like you might hear in Berea, which is a different style audience with, <laughs> with the, the media there that's in attendance screaming mm-hmm. questions because everyone's just trying to get their question in, uh, it's a different environment in the NFL with the Browns as opposed to with, I think, the baseball media and the managers, which is a little bit more laid back. I don't know if it's because we we meet so often or what it is about that setting that kind of creates that atmosphere. But I I certainly, having been in both atmospheres, I certainly enjoy the baseball atmosphere so much more because I feel like, and and maybe this is foolish for me to believe this, but I feel like you get more honest, thoughtful answers in in that setting. And I actually feel like I learn something sometimes in those settings. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, A couple buzzwords he likes conscientious he would always describe Michael Bourne that way um I mean we know what that means but in baseball and in, in when you're giving vague ambiguous just kind of run-of-the-mill answers to the basic questions you hear every day conscientious can be, I mean it could mean anything like <laughs> he's like a thoughtful player I mean but obviously because like who wouldn't want to be conscientious when playing baseball and you have to be mindful of what might happen next or I don't know. That one is just always so superfluous, unnecessary. I mean, it's egregious. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and then wild card has become one of his favorite ones to describe, I, I guess a reliever who can pitch in a variety of roles. He he's, I mean, how many times do we hear him describe Jeff Manship that way? Oh, he's the wild card out there because you can use him for one batter. You could use him for five batters, use him in the fifth inning, the eighth inning. And then was it Dan Otero became the wild card. And then was Nick Goody last year, the wild card. Well, for, well, for a while it was, it was Atch. It was Scott Atchison. And he would constantly refer to Atchison and Manship in the same breath. And then eventually, yes, it became Otero and now Goody. Uh, The ones that came to mind for me was when, in addition to asking a question, you set it up with maybe your thought or kind of your thought process on how you got to that question. And maybe he'll disagree with something that you say in the, in that first part of it, but he understands where you're coming from. So he'll offer you to your point. Oh, yeah. He gives you the, to your point, well, to your point, And then he will go into maybe something that he can see where you're coming from, but maybe doesn't necessarily agree with the thought behind it. Uh, the one that is frequently used. And I think, we, we might have set a world record in the final 
month or so was we don't have a crystal ball. Well, we don't mm. have a crystal ball. We can't forecast what's going to happen. We, I don't know, Michael Brantley, how, how healthy he's going to be. I don't have a crystal ball. So that one's always out there. And the one that was pretty prevalent early in his managerial career, I think, has come um, has maybe been reduced here recently as he gets to know us and we get to know him and we understand how to ask questions. And he kind of then realizes who this is kind of a weird way to put it, but I can't think of a better way to put it. Who in the room he can trust and maybe who in the room he doesn't trust. Uh, he used to offer the, are you asking me? Or are you telling me when someone oh, yeah. would say, well, uh, Justin Masterson pits pretty well today. Well, are you, are oh. you asking or are you telling me today? I'm glad he does that too. Cause it, it like, ask a question. You're not just like, it is the job of a reporter covering a game it's it's not easy, but like there are certain aspects like that that are so simple. Just ask a question. Don't be lazy. And I remember one time in Detroit, uh, this older gentleman who just gets burned by Tito every season, and deservedly so, because his questions are awful. And they're not questions, but he just said, he said, quote, so your pitching's coming around, huh? And Tito <laughs> just looked at him like, like burning a hole through him. And... Well, technically, that's a question. Him. I mean, he—if you added, maybe ha he didn't. He might end. not have. He might not. He might not have said the ha, but <laughs> like, just ask something. Like, it's. I understand that we all know why we're there, and we're just trying to get quotes. And the manager knows that too. But at least pay him the respect of steering him in the right direction. Like, I know a lot of managers or players will, they'll oblige and they'll answer that. But I have no problem with Tito not doing that. And I love the look he gives too when you ask something stupid or confusing or or you say something like that and it's like <laughs> it's, squints his never, eyes and turns his yeah, head slightly sideways. You never want that look. <laughs> no, striving to avoid it. Uh, final ones that I could think of. Uh, we're not going to fill out the lineup two weeks from now or something to that effect. He'll always something about not wanting to fill out the lineup or or make decisions two weeks in advance. And the one I told you last week, which is still one of my favorites, is you guys done jacking around back there in regard <laughs> to the people in the back of the room that were, were just talking, trying to figure out something with their camera or something, and in the middle of the press conference. Um, and he finally called him out. And then you always get that, <laughs> that look where he'll look at other people in the room to like look for reassurance that he's not crazy, that the people mm -hmm. in the room are doing something stupid. Um, and then in which case you kind of just look down at the ground because it's, it's, it's just an awkward situation for everybody involved. You know, he hasn't said Jack of all trades in a few years. I've noticed that. Have to go back and I wish I still had. And in fact, I might still have some of the old audio from like years past, probably buried in emails. I probably have it or yeah, I could just go through there and see all of the things that he used to say, maybe that he needs to bring back out. You know, bring it out of retirement. It's, we've we've heard enough about the crystal ball now. Bring us some of the old the old classics. You know, just like classic Titoisms. I think if we mixed one of those in a week, it would kind of keep us all on our feet. Or if we included his go to words in our questions. Oh yeah, then you get the proud Papa look when he. Yeah. Oh oh yeah oh yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, final things uh, this week. Got uh, a number of tweets rolling in on Twitter asking us different questions, so I'll fire them your way. Ace needs to know, what year will the Indians induct Michael Martinez into their Hall of Fame? 
Uh, well, assuming his Indians tenure will end in 2028, and then he'll take a couple years off to spend time with family, I would guess like 2031. Um, so Michael Martinez, this is going to be his fourth season with the Indians, which means his tenure with the tribe will be longer than Roberto Alomar's, <laughs> which is so sad. At what point does so, he become so a sad. 10 and 5 guy? Does that work when you no just, trade clubs? When, yeah. when you just continuously sign minor league deal after minor league deal, I don't know if that actually goes into it. How do you know they haven't already told him that he's in the Hall of Fame, and that they just keep re-signing him every year to justify this in the future? You know, so at one point, you know, they can look back and say, "See, it made sense that he was in the Hall of Fame because he played with us for this many years." Is he? You laugh, but. We, you know, we've talked about do you reward longevity when voting for the actual <laughs> Baseball Hall of Fame? Omar Vizquel needed 24 years to pile up all those offensive counting stats. Tim Raines played for a really long time. We finally rewarded him last year. Well, if Michael Martinez plays till he's 60, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. he's, I think he's uh, definitely in Jeff Manto territory for uh, greatest AAA players of of all time uh 216 diehard needs to know do you think danny salazar will be in the indians opening day roster which i think the only way that he wouldn't be is if he got traded or he's on the dl i mean those are the two, only two situations so traded or on the dl any either one of those makes sense for salazar no not yet i don't think they look they have an extra guy in the rotation someone's gonna have to go to the bullpen maybe that's salazar Maybe it's Clevenger. I don't know. Maybe it's Tomlin. Who knows? But that's it. They have those six guys. I don't know that I feel comfortable with Ryan Merritt as a regular in my rotation. I don't really – not looking to give Julian Merriweather a shot yet or Cody Anderson yeah, still needs got to Cody rehab, Anderson so. picking up boxes yeah. in Goodyear. He is ready to if, go. <laughs> if I'm the Indians, I'm keeping Salazar. I, that depth is an advantage still. You can use him – you can use someone in the bullpen for now. You have an extra arm in case someone gets hurt. And then maybe when like Tristan McKenzie's ready in a year or two or so, maybe then you you trade from your unit of strength and and replace the relievers you're going to lose or fill a hole on offense. I just I don't think I'd be comfortable trading him, especially because you probably won't get as much as you would have gotten a year right. ago. So right. why sell low? Right. That that's the bigger thing to me. And I and I still think if he doesn't pan out as a starter. He can be uh, a tremendous oh, weapon out of the bullpen. There's another Titoism for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I still think there's a lot of value that can be created there that you're probably not going to make up on the trade market. Could he be on the DL, though? I mean, sure. We, we've seen enough to believe that that could be a possibility. So, I mean, that's probably the only way I could see right now him not being on the opening day roster is if he opened the season on the disabled list. Mike Brown, not the former Cavs coach, needs to know how come we don't have robots to bring us beer yet but Paulie had one in Rocky Four. Pensive look, pensive look. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> Here's oh what, boy, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. I have seen enough of the. I mean, have you seen the? Oh, what country is it that has created the ro- the female robot? And yeah, and like she wants to have kids or something now, or what? What <laughs> happened with she's, that? She's making jokes about getting annihilating the human race. I mean, how yeah, many great. how many bad Terminator movies have to be made before we realize, hey, maybe this isn't so smart. Maybe giving them 
all this unlimited knowledge and then the ability to make decisions without us involved is not a good idea. <sighs> yeah. So, I, so if I have to go get my own disaster. beer, if I have to get my own beer, I'm, I'm cool with that, right? Can we, can we settle on that? Yeah, but if any listeners who are meeting up with me to grab a beer want to bring a robot to do the work, that's fine too. <laughs> uh, finally, Buddy C, is it just baseball purists that hate the infield shift for certain batters? Do you also hate the infield shift, Zach Meisel? It is. I mean, it's got to be so demoralizing if you're a hitter and you smoke one into right field and the second baseman is just standing like right there. I don't know. Right, 50, right. Like, like basically playing where some right fielders play and just gathers it, makes the long throw to first, and it's an easy out. Like that's that has to be so frustrating. And I know that's why people hit the ball in the air now and that's why you have to learn – to go the other way, lay down a bunt down the line, something like that. But, you know, you, you don't – I'm sure you deal with that in high school and college now. You probably didn't 20 years ago. But you don't deal with it to that degree. <laughs> like, uh, something – you know that if you just yank an inside fastball to right field for years and years of your life, that's been an easy hit, and now it's not, and that's just got to suck. And it stands out every time the ball gets hit through the hole at shortstop where the shortstop would play, and everyone throws their hands up in the air, and, and, and Trevor Bauer's upset about where the ball got placed. But we never think about the ball that gets scorched back up the middle, and Jason Kipnis was standing right there, takes it, mm-hmm. fields it, and throws it to first base for the out. It's, the, the ones that stand out are always going to trump the ones that just kind of get lost. And, and so that's why the shift will continue on though. We did see a slight reduction in shifts this year. How about that? Teams actually use well, this, the shift slightly less, which there is a point here where you can overuse the shift. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, where doing it too much is now hurting you. So up until probably this past year, teams have been trying to figure out what that point is. And maybe they have a, a stronger indication of when to shift, when not to shift. But the Indians actually were in the, I think they're close to the bottom third in shifts this year. It's going to be interesting, I mean, as, as time goes on, because I guess the ideal hitter to be would be a hitter who doesn't have tendencies, or just, like, you hit the ball to all fields, and you hit the ball over the fence, and because... Mike Trout. Yeah, I mean, like, we know, like, Carlos Santana likes to pull the ball, okay. Well, you shift him so much, you obviously force him to try to hit the ball the other way, try to do different things, and at some point... He becomes really good at that, and you have to reduce your shifts or shift him a different way or pitch him a different way. And so, like, it's just going to go – like, it takes time. So this doesn't happen overnight, but it does – it's going to just go back and forth like that. I, like, right. I'm not surprised to hear that there's a reduction in shifts, and I think there's a point where it's diminishing marginal returns, if I can put my economics degree to use. There and I just – yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, I don't – and that's why the game is so cyclical. Um, yeah, it's why I laugh is, when, it, when anyone thinks they've found the answer because you may have yeah. found the answer for five minutes, but then somebody changes the question. So I, I always hesitate to say, well, the fly ball revolution will change baseball forever. Yeah, until the pitchers make their adjustment. And then the pitchers make the adjustment and the hitters make the adjustment. Um, right now, it's all about the home run, hit the ball over the fence. But 10, 15 years from now, we might be looking at a bunch of contact hitters to – to go away from all the pitches that generate all the strikeouts. You know, I, I think it's, it's always interesting because baseball has its own little life force. I will, I will give a shout out to the Indians though, because 
I don't know. I don't know how much of this is just because they have a tremendous pitching staff, and how much of it is just because they have smart analytic people, and Mike Sarbaugh knows where to position the infielders. But in the shift last year, and I said they didn't shift as much as most teams, but they had the lowest weighted on base average when they were in the shift, and when they weren't in the shift, they were actually had the fourth highest weighted on base average. So they were one of the they were the most successful team in the shift last year. That could be because. Again, they have tremendous pitchers who just in those situations got hitters out, or it could be because they know when to shift and they utilize that correctly. I can't wait to read your Friday Insider piece with the headline, (laughs) Shift Happens. (laughs) And the end of the podcast has happened as well. Thank you so much for your time this week, buddy. Uh, Michael Martinez posted a 916 OPS with the Indians last season. And through a scoreless inning, so keep that in mind. Thanks for listening to the Celtics. Shohei Otani is not the only two-way that's, dominant player. That's right. Chris Jimenez and Michael Martinez. Could happen. Till next week, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Bumpers, and thanks for listening.